0: All right, good morning. Good morning. Um, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. We are beginning a new uh, sermon series this morning in the book of Psalms. So I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to open your Bible to Psalm 27. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can see there's a blue Bible at the end of the uh, row of chairs. And Psalm 27 is on page 460. Uh, I was thinking this week. Uh, Dick just mentioned, uh, you all know this, 4th of July is coming up, and I always, um, as we're getting closer to 4th of July, one of the things that always makes me think of uh, is just the songs of the 4th of July. Um, You know, we probably have different ideas of what those might be for some of us. It's patriotic songs. Some of you, sadly, have the horrible habit of listening to country music, I'm afraid. Um... (laughs) Um, I it, It's the time of year when I just love to tune up my kind of Americana playlist on Pandora with, um, you know, Bruce Springsteen and uh, Journey and Boston and all those kind of '70s, '80s Americana. Um, so it's just the sound of summer to me. You know, there's there's Fourth of July songs, there's summer songs, there are road trip songs, and it, it, they always just make me think about how interesting the role of music. Is and songs are in our lives Um, songs I think I've always been interested in the way that music affects us because something I think really interesting happens with a song It, uh, it starts as something outside of us right most of us in this room except for maybe you know two or three at the most I think are not songwriters most of us don't write songs and so most songs come to us as something that we didn't create and yet, if we sing a song and we listen to it enough, it doesn't take very long before we start to think of it as that's my song or that's, maybe that's our song, right? And so songs begin to uh, become something that, that actually serve as an expression of who we are. And then as we continue to, sh- to sing them, they actually shape us and kind of form um, the way that we think about whatever the song is about. Or the, or they shape what, the things that we love. Um, they shape us as people. And the other thing that songs do is they also connect us to something larger than ourselves. And we see this all over the place, too. Obviously, uh, patriotic songs connect us to um, something greater than ourselves. You might have had this experience in a concert. Um, have you ever come out? I remember Ashley and I going to see U2 a couple years ago. And coming out of the concert, just like, that was, like, the most meaningful thing. Oh, it was great. And you tell your friends, and they just don't get it. And you're like, but it's You Too, And... Like okay, I bet it connects you to the sense of something beyond yourself. Um, um, Obviously, this is true in church too, right? The songs that we sing connect us to something beyond ourselves. And this summer, we are starting this series in the Book of Songs, Songs, Psalms. This series called the Songs of Summer. Um, because the psalms song, the are a book right in the middle of the Bible, made up of about a, uh, not about made up of 150 psalms that originally they were songs. They were um, the really the the hymn book for God's people in the Old Testament, and even still today there are there are some branches of the Christian Church that exclusively sing the 150 psalms. And, uh, you know, I I think that might be a little bit of an overreaction, but I I think what it it shows us is the rich value of the psalms in the life of of the people of God, even to this day. Um, One of the the values, I think, of the psalms, I think the psalms are really helpful for American Christians in 2017 because they help us express a wide range of emotions. And uh, we have gotten to a place... um, the American church, I think especially, where we we like to be really positive, (laughs) we like to be really excited. And and the Psalms help us give voice to uh, being happy, and to being joyful, and to praising God. But the Psalms also help give voice to emotions that we often don't know what to do with. Uh, It's not that we're never sad um, as Christians, right? But we often don't know what to do with our sadness as it comes to relating to God. And so the Psalms help us um, to lament. They help us to know what to do um, with our negative emotions. They help us to know um, what to do when everything isn't happy, when we're in pain, when we're frustrated, when we're heartbroken. And because of that, the Psalms help um, help us express these emotions, and so they help us to see how we live all of our lives in the presence of God. But I think it's also helpful to remember that the Psalms are songs. Um, they're songs that God's people have sung for 3,000, three thousand, maybe thirty-five hundred years in some cases, and so they shape us. They they help us to um, they help us to worship God. They help us to be the kind of people who, when we are sad and when we are joyful, that we bring our sorrow and we bring our joy to God. And my hope this summer is to expose us, uh, some of us maybe for the first time, and some some of us uh, you know for the 100th time to a few of the psalms. We're not going to look at all 150. Uh, You'll probably be glad to know this summer. But we're going to look about, uh, I think, 8 or 11 psalms or something like that this summer. And the first one we're going to look at is Psalm 27. So if you would stand with me, I will read for us Psalm 27. The Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Will you pray with me? Oh God, we come to you as uh, thirsty, needy people. And so, God, we pray that uh, this morning we wouldn't just learn something interesting about your word, but that you would give us yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, Psalm 27 is about uh, being afraid. It's about stress and anxiety and fear and uncertainty and how to deal with it. And so I think uh, it doesn't need a whole lot of introduction because we are people who know what it is to be afraid, to look at the future with uncertainty. Um, stress and fear and anxiety are things that we constantly deal with. And um, you know, these are the kinds of things you'll see, inter- articles floating around on the internet, books, magazines, uh, magazine articles, all about you know uh, 10 steps for dealing with anxiety. Um, you know, you find stuff like this on Facebook all the time. Popular articles, you know, here's how to deal with, you know, when when work is stressful, uh, when your marriage is under pressure, whatever it is. And I think it's safe to say that when you read these kind of popular articles about how to deal with stress, how to deal with fear, how to deal with anxiety, they typically say two things. You get two pieces of advice. Uh, the first thing that people say when you're struggling is typically something like, it's not really that bad. You know, I know it seems like it's a big deal, but you're going to get over this, you're going to get through. Um, You know, the the general advice is sort of like, it's really not going to be that bad. And then the second thing that you'll hear is, you can do it. Uh, I know that this challenge seems difficult, but you've just got to look inside yourself. Uh, you've You've got to muster all you can. You've got to dig in. You've got to give it all you've got. Um, because you can pull through, but you've just got to believe in yourself. I always think the problem with that is that anxiety, I think by definition is, but I don't actually believe in myself. Uh, I'm working as hard as I can, and I'm afraid that I'm going to fail. We're very familiar with anxiety, and we're often told, you can do it. Well, uh, yesterday my wife told me about this... um, she, she was listening to this podcast. She told me the story. She said it was sh- sh- safe for me to share this. So, if you don't like it, you know. <laughs> no, you can tell me. Um, she, so I went and listen to it. There, she, this story about um, the Lap people in northern Finland. You know, way up like Arctic Circle, and they raise reindeer. And um, they they raise reindeer, but the, the wolves are always trying to uh, always attacking the reindeer. And so the the big question is, how do you keep? How do they keep the wolves? From attacking the reindeer and what they what they do is they take they have these big these big knives lap knives and they coat them in reindeer blood and they, then the blood freezes and they attach them to trees kind of in the areas around where the reindeer graze and so the wolves will see the reindeer and they will you know be attracted to the reindeer but as they get close they'll smell the blood on the knives and they'll begin to lick the knife and the knife it's like a blood sickle. And then, and the blood will begin to melt, and they'll they'll just kind of, you know, as they're tasting blood, they get more and more ravenous, and licking these knives, and they eventually cut themselves, and so they're bleeding, and they're, you know, and eventually they choke on their own blood. And that is a picture of anxiety. Thank you. I'll take the credit. Anxiety is looking at ourselves, or it's looking at something in our lives. Maybe it's um, a relationship, maybe it's a struggle at work, and it's beginning to obsess over that thing. And what anxiety is, it's really choking on ourselves. And when you look at the popular articles and whatever it is that, that gives you advice on dealing with your anxiety, all they can do is tell you to work harder and try better, and be better, and you too can make it. But it's not working. Um, it's, It's not working. The reason that I'm anxious so much of the time is precisely because I'm working so stinking hard, and it doesn't seem to be working. And Psalm 27 comes along, and it shows us the solution to our anxiety, and what it says is, the solution to anxiety is not to look at yourself and just muster a little bit more, but it lifts our gaze up. And it says there there is something or someone that you are completely missing in your anxiety. It lifts our eyes, our gaze off of ourselves, off of our trouble, and it encourages us to look to God himself. What our anxieties do is they reveal to us what's really in our hearts. And so there's a question that I wanna ask you just as we uh, get started here. And the question is this, the question that anxiety poses to us is this, Do you believe that there is a God? Or do you actually know Him? Let me say that again. Do you believe that there is a God? Or do you actually know Him? You know, about 90% of Americans believe that there is a God. But do you actually know (coughs) Him? This last week, I was meeting with our outreach team, um, Josh Bastian. And Alita Pregazer and I were meeting, and we were talking about uh, what are we doing to, uh, to reach out to people in our community? What are we doing to grow our church? And uh, I was just, oh man, I was getting so worked up. I was, I'm so stressed. I'm so anxious about how do I, as a pastor, encourage our church to grow? And Josh looks at me, and he says, you know what? Like We're going to talk about outreach, but you have got to start believing these things that you stand up and tell us every week, um, you've got to start believing that God is really good and that He's really in control. And I realized, you know, um, it's it's so easy to slip from knowing God, knowing a God who is good, and knowing a God who is in control, and just knowing that somewhere out there there is a God who might probably be goodish or something. I don't know. And I needed to be reminded because my stress, my anxiety, my, my anxiousness, um, my fear reveals what's really in my heart. And I need to be reminded often of, of who God is and how overwhelmingly he really is, how overwhelmingly good he really is to me. And this is not a theoretical question. Do you just know that there is a God? Everybody knows that there is a God. But do you actually know him? How do we deal with our anxiety? Psalm 27 uh, is written by David, the great King David, and he knew about dealing with anxiety. Uh, He knew it all of his life. When he says, uh, an army encamps against me, he's not being metaphorical. There's like an army led by his son that wants him dead. He knew about anxiety, but he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation Whom shall I fear? Do you know God? Do you know Him? How do we deal with our anxiety? Well, Psalm 27 is is just beautiful in the way it talks about our anxiety. But it all centers on verse 4. And in verse 4 is kind of the heart of Psalm 27. There are three uh, verbs that show us how to deal with our anxiety. In verse 4, Um, David asks or David says one thing I have asked of the Lord and then he says three verbs seek dwell and gaze seek dwell and gaze and so the first thing I want you to see is that if you are going to uh, deal with your anxiety you're gonna have to dwell David says there's one thing that I have asked God for there's one thing that I really need and it's to dwell in the house of the Lord forever now, you might think, what in the world does that mean? Um, you know, if you were, actually, if you were here last week when we were finishing our series in the book of Leviticus, we talked about the Day of Atonement, and the priest, once a year, goes into the temple, the tabernacle. Um, nobody lived in the temple. Nobody, you couldn't live in the house of God. Um, what, does, what is David talking about? Well, he's not literally saying, I want to live in that building... I want to go into this curtain, you know, beyond this curtain, Um, what he's saying is that no matter what happens to me, I can handle it as long as I have the presence of God. Um, I can deal with whatever life throws at me if I'm dwelling in the presence of God, if he is beautiful to me, if I have God's face, I can take anything. And when anxiety creeps in, it's because something other than God has become primary for us. David is saying, this is the one thing. Having God's presence, having God's face, dwelling with him, that is the one thing I need. And when anxiety creeps in, it's because something else has begun to take that, that primary place. Something else has become that one thing. Now, a little bit of anxiety, I think, is a good thing. A little bit of anxiety it means you're a human being who actually cares about people. You know, a little bit of anxiety is what enables you as a parent to keep your kids safe. It's the thing that makes you jump out of your chair when you see your toddler wandering towards a a street. Um, A little bit of anxiety is what moves us to action to defend those that are marginalized in our society. A little bit of anxiety is the thing that gives us compassion for our coworker who's going through a divorce. a little bit of anxiety is a good thing. But what you have to see is that anxiety only comes from the things that we really care about. Um, And so for the most part, anxiety, I mean, not exclusively, but typically for us, anxiety comes from things that are good. Um, Money is a good thing. Working is a good thing. Sex is a good thing. Relationships are good things. Having kids, these are all good things. But when they become the primary thing, when they become the ultimate thing, when they become the thing that we tell ourselves, as as long as I have this, then I will be happy. Then I will be content. That's when. That's where anxiety comes from. Um, our kids, right? Many of us are anxious. Many, for many of us, our kids are the biggest sources of stress in our lives. We want them to be safe. We want them to be healthy. We want them to have every opportunity, and that's wonderful. But then we tell ourselves that uh, we have we have failed if we're not giving our kids every opportunity. We have failed if we're not um, you know we've failed as people if if our kids leave if our kids don't get in the best colleges if our kids leave you know I mean what's the worst thing that could happen as a parent that your kids would leave your house and turn their back on you? I mean would that not be the worst thing in the world? But what does David say in verse ten? What David says is, even if my father and mother forsake me, still the Lord will take me in. I think if he was writing to us, most many of us in Orange County, South Orange County, he might say, even if your son and daughter forsake you, still the Lord will take you in. Listen, if God's face is the one thing that you need, if you are dwelling with him and your kids grow up and they turn their back on you, they walk away from you, It's going to hurt, but it's not going to crush you. And if you've spent 18, 20, 25 years telling yourself that I am good enough because my kids are good enough, because my kids are smart, because my kids are well-adjusted, and then they leave your house and they turn their back on you, it will crush you. It will crush you. Our anxiety always comes from taking something even a good thing, and making it the thing. The thing that we need. But, if we make God our greatest joy, then we will live without fear, because God is fine. He doesn't need us to take care of Him. Does that mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us? Of course not. But it means that the thing on which our ultimate hope is placed is unshakable, and immovable and when bad things happen it won't crush us because we have God's face we can deal with anything when we have God's face almost every day um, when I'm leaving the house when I'm, I'm going to work um, and my little girl she'll hear me getting ready get, rather, gathering my stuff she'll hear me get my keys she'll say Daddy where are you going? every day I'm going to work she said no don't go to work It'll be okay. I'm going to come home. I'll be home tonight. She says, but can I hug you and kiss you? Okay, yes. Sure. We can take anything if we have our Father's face. Do you know about God or do you know it? Do you have His face? Do you know that He smiles at you? Are you dwelling with Him? Unless He's at the center of your life, you will always be anxious. Tim Keller, who um, actually just retired, I think, as a, a pastor in New York City, um, he said this. What, um, he pointed out that in his sermon on this passage, he said, in verse 4, David says, there's one thing that I need, one thing that I would ask of God, and then he says three things, dwell, seek, and gaze. And so what, what Tim Keller said is, what that must mean, if there's one thing and then there's three verbs, it must mean... That the way that we dwell is by seeking and by gazing. And so the question that, okay, that's great. Um, I will never be anxious if I dwell in the presence of God if I have his, have his face, but how? How do I do that? And so the second thing I want you to see is that you dwell in God's presence by seeking and by gazing. We dwell with God by seeking after Him and by gazing on His beauty. Seeking and gazing are two ways, the two words that talk about pursuing God. And, um, uh, and they're both important, and they're distinct, they're different, and yet I think the key is that we do both of them. Um, seeking implies a level of intentionality. I'm going and looking for God. Uh, it means that we go, um, we go places that we know where God will be found. If we're seeking God, if we want to be in God's presence, we go to places we know God is going to show up. And so we go to his word. And we go to his word and we read because in his word he tells us what he's like. Uh, in his word he tells us what he's done. In his word he tells us what's true about ourselves. It's, uh, he tells us what's true about the world that we live in. And so we seek God by listening to his word. Uh, we also seek God by going to church. Because God loves to be in the presence of his people. We give attention to the sacraments, to baptism in the Lord's Supper, because God promises to make himself known uh, as, we, as we seek him in the sacraments. Seeking implies learning about God and learning, from, learning, from, learning about and from God. It's about acquiring um, knowledge and also acquiring experience. So that's seeking, but then gazing. David says, I will gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And gazing has this idea of like beholding the beauty of something. It's about being overwhelmed and overcome um, with something that is just indescribable and incredible and beautiful. Um, Contemplating God in his character, turning it over in our imaginations, having a level of curiosity and mystery and intrigue about who God is. Uh, there's a sense, I think, in which um, gazing on the beauty of God is, um, is, is the goal, actually, that is, that is pictured in the intimacy between a husband and wife. Um, gazing on the beauty of your beloved, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, means letting the wonder and the curiosity and the mystery of God warm our hearts, fill our minds and fill our imaginations and excite our curiosity. Seeking and gazing are two ways of dwelling with God and of knowing his presence and of getting his face. And and what David is saying here, I think, is that we have to do both. Um, We have to seek and we have to gaze. And I think most of us, by nature, are inclined towards one or the other. But if we just seek, if we just seek to learn about God, and we read books and we listen to lectures and we... um, you know, and, and we we seek and we learn apart from gazing upon the beauty of God. It leads us towards a sort of formulaic, Pharisaic legalism, where we are very quick to evaluate, and we are very slow to worship. Seeking God and learning more about who He is should lead us to worship. If we could talk in great detail about. Theology, but we never are moved uh, to lift our hands, if we're never emotionally captivated in worship, then something has gone very wrong. Similarly, some of us, I think, are inclined to gaze without seeking. And uh, maybe we're the kind of person who is often overwhelmed by the beauty of God in worship or, or the, the majesty of God as he's, uh, as he's just displayed himself in nature. And yet when we gaze without seeking, the danger for us is that we're more interested in the emotion than in God himself. We can become more interested in the experience of the gazing than the one upon whom we're gazing. And we don't have any time for learning about who God is and what what he's actually um, told us is true. And in an extreme example, uh, we can begin to actually wander away from God because we're just so wrapped up in this experience. Of gazing, but gazing upon God means obeying His word, um, or gazing upon God requires obeying His word. Gazing upon God without obeying His word is sort of like the uh, the spouse who's very interested in intimacy but not very interested in taking out the trash or whatever chores, and we need both. And we get God's face when we seek and when we gaze, and when they come together. I can remember a time when I was in seminary, um, in grad school, preparing um, for to become a pastor. And um, you know, we spent a lot of time in, in grad school seeking after God. And I remember listening to my my systematic theology professor just lecturing on the attributes of God, the character and the nature of God. And it's very interesting and very, you know, mind-expanding. And he was talking um, at one point on on the work of God in creating the world that we live in and in sustaining and upholding the world that we live in. And he made the point that, um, you know, just the scientific advance has actually, for many of us, removed the sense of wonder and mystery about God's work as the creator of our universe. But 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 he said this, I thought this was so great. He said, just because we know how the water cycle works doesn't mean we can actually make it rain. Okay? We know that water evaporates and forms clouds and I'm not, gonna, you know, I'm not talking in detail here, but it rains, right? We know how it works. But just because I know how it works doesn't mean I have any ability to make it rain. And I remember sitting in that lecture thinking, that's a, that's a great point, I'm going to use that sometime. And then... I walked out, and it started late. I walked outside, and it started raining. And I just, like, started weeping. And it was this moment of seeking and gazing coming together and walking home in the rain with this just overwhelming sense that God loves me, that he is majestic in the way, in what he can do, that he causes the rain to fall. And I am utterly incapable of doing that. And it led me to worship and to be moved by his goodness. Many people today say, oh, I don't go to church because I worship God in nature. You know, I worship God at the beach. I worship God in the mountains. And um, I think the Bible insists that we cannot know God by nature alone. But having you know, sought God, um, having learned about God, it enhances our experience of uh, the beauty of the sunset is so much more majestic because we know it points to a God who loves us. When gazing and seeking come together, we get God's face. We dwell in His house. When He is the one thing that we truly need, we can be content no matter what life throws at us. So that's that's how we get God's face, by seeking and by gazing But real practically, right, you might say, okay, that's real interesting, but I got this thing coming up this week, and it's terrifying me. So what do I do? And I want to say two things. And the first is, this takes time. Um, Dwelling in the presence of God, it takes time. And that's why, you know, we need to be regular. It, It requires the regularity of worship and reading God's Word. To remind ourselves over and over and over again that um, He really is good, that He really is in control. That's why I needed Josh to tell me, "Dude, you got to listen to the things that you're saying. You need to actually believe them." When actually, when Josh said that, I said, "Thank you." And Alida, who was also there, said, "I told you that same thing this morning. <laughs> I said I needed to hear it more than once before it started to sink in." Right. We need to be reminded it's a lifelong process Um, I think for many of us the reality is there are maybe one or two hours a week when we are told God is in control and he loves you and everything's gonna be fine so put your hope in him and the other however many hours we have a week we are told it's all upon you It doesn't matter what you've done it doesn't matter what you're about to do you're only as valuable as your most recent failure And the anxiety of that we carry with us constantly. It's a lifelong process of learning to dwell in the presence of God, learning to enjoy His face. But the second thing, um, just really practical, is that um, as we start this series on the Psalms, we want to give you a gift this this Sunday. And um, as a church, uh, we have bought a bunch of books and a bunch of CDs, and they are um, a gift to you, and uh, what, I, what I want to do is just help you find a way to take the book of Psalms beyond Sunday morning into the rest of your week. And so uh, we've got a, a bunch of books on the Psalms by Tim Keller, who I uh, mentioned earlier, A Year of Daily Devotions in the Psalms, and this is a great way, I didn't actually plan to, to do this, but a book and a CD, seek and dwell. Um, This uh, this book is a great way, maybe in the morning, to open it up, you know, one one, uh, portion of the Psalms every day for a year. There's a reading, there's a little meditation, and there's a prayer. It'll take you five minutes, and it's a simple way, maybe on your own, maybe with your family, maybe over the dinner table, to seek um, God's presence together. But secondly, we have a, a CD by Sandra McCracken. She's a Christian artist. She lives in Nashville, and uh, she's written a bunch of songs. We actually sang several of her songs already this morning, and um, we have a bunch of CDs. This might be the last CD that you ever own. Um, it might be the last time anybody ever gives you a CD, but we have a bunch of CDs that we'd love to get you or give, give to you. And so um, you can take one, you can put it in your car, you can learn the, learn the songs, you can sing along with them. I can tell you one of the ways that I gaze regularly on God's beauty is just by singing, by singing songs throughout the day. Um, after the service, our Connect team is going to be at the info table. They would love to give you a book or a CD. Just stop by and ask for one. And uh, we would love for that to be a gift to you, um, today and we'll be giving them out for um, the rest of the summer or until we run, we run out, I guess. Um, so stop by the info table and pick one of those up um, as our gift to you to help you to seek and to gaze after God this summer. So let me uh, as I conclude, ask you the, sum, uh, the the question that I started with. are you anxious? Do you know about God? Or do you actually know him? You know, a great test um, to help you answer that question. Do I know about God? Do I just believe intellectually that there is a God? Or do I actually know the person of God who who has made himself known to me in Jesus? Um, A great question to ask yourself to help you answer whether you know him or just know about him is this. Do you feel the need to defend yourself? Um... David says, The Lord is the stronghold of my life. God is the one who defends me. I'm not anxious because I know that God is the one who comes to my defense. So, therefore, I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to defend myself um, against those who accuse me. I don't have to be a perfect parent because God is my defender. I don't have to be a perfect pastor because God is my defender. I don't have to be a perfect husband, I don't have to defend myself against every criticism because God is the one who defends me. Nothing will help you seek God and gaze on his beauty more than this, um, knowing that he is the one who comes to your defense. Nothing will help you seek and gaze upon the beauty of God more than knowing that you have a defender. I read this week about Kathleen Parker (coughs) who won the Pulitzer Prize in 2010 and after she won the Pulitzer Prize she wrote an article um, in a uh, I think actually a um, newspaper in Dallas about her 11th grade English teacher who she said was um, the man who changed her life she had grown up in Central Florida And in 11th grade, her family moved to a small town in Mississippi, and she found herself in an English class um, diagramming sentences. And her previous high school in Florida, they hadn't taught her how to diagram sentences. And so her teacher, Mr. Gasp, was standing at the chalkboard with his back to the class, waiting for Kathleen um, to, to, uh, Kathleen Parker, to tell him what to say, to, to tell him what to write, to diagram the sentence. And she sat there in the classroom, having just moved into the school in utter terror because she didn't have the first idea about how to diagram a sentence. And she wrote, whatever I saw. I can't remember what I actually said, but apparently it was hilarious because my entire 11th grade English class burst into laughter. And she said, at that moment, Mr. Gask Gask executed a perfect pirouette, And he turned to face the class. And with his face red and full of anger, he said, don't you ever do that again. And then he said, she can outright every single one of you any day of the week. And Kathleen Parker said, that man changed my life. She had a defender. And in the rest of 11th grade, she began to devour literature, and she began to develop her gifts as a writer, and she began to flourish. And in 2010, she won one of the most coveted prizes an author could ever be awarded, because she had a defender. What about you? Do you have a defender? Do you know that God is not just a being who dwells somewhere far away, that he sees you and is somewhat indifferent some of the time, but that he knows you, that he came to earth as a man, that he gave up in Jesus. God actually loses How do I say this? God loses the face of God. On the cross, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, why have I lost your face? For the first time in all of eternity, Jesus doesn't know the presence of his Father. Why does God turn his face from Jesus? Jesus loses the face of God to assure you that you will never lose the face of God. He is the one who defends you. He is the one who loves you. He is the one in whom you can trust. You don't have to fear. You can let your anxiety go and dwell in the presence of God because He is the one who defends you. Let's pray. God, thank you for Psalm 27 for this wonderful poem, these words um, that remind us that you are the God who comes to our defense, that your presence is the one thing that we really need. And God, I pray that whether we come this morning um, as people who have never heard that you are a God who uh, wants to remove our fear, or whether we come just at the end of another week. We come to you as believers, but we come um, bearing the, just the wear of the week. A feeling like we have failed, a feeling like we will continue to fail. God, I pray that we would leave with a new song in our heads and in our hearts. That as we leave, we would leave singing. Singing because you are the God who has given us your face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.